This morning's reading is from Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and then we'll also read Genesis 8, verse 20 through 9, 17. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Turning over to Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant 
that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Our God, I thank you for being a merciful God. I thank you for being mighty in that mercy. I thank you for being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Father. God, even though today we have to contemplate a story of the outpouring of your anger towards sin, God, I pray that you would help us to see these things rightly and to balance them and to come away with the right understanding of what your heart is really like. God, you know how deep the struggle has been in my heart this week as I've sought to understand and to balance in my preparation how to articulate who you are and how this story displays for us another piece of who you are, Father, another, sh- another shade, another angle, another depth of your heart. And Father, all I can do now is throw myself upon your mercy and ask you to help me, God. Help me not only to speak what is true, but help me to have the right tone and help me to communicate what is true of your heart. Oh God, please take over now. Be our teacher. You said in Matthew, Lord, call no one on earth your teacher, for you have one teacher and he is in heaven. So come now and be our teacher, Father, and reveal your heart rightly to us, I pray. I trust you for this, Lord. I trust in your word. I give myself to you, and we all give ourselves to you, Father, as willing and eager learners and worshipers this morning. We give you our thanks in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we meditated together a little bit on the mighty mercy of God as displayed in the life of a sinner who had killed his own brother. It's likely, we don't actually know for 100% sure because sometimes the Bible just begins telling a story and, and kind of leaves gaps of time, but it seems probably pretty sure that Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's first two sons and they were given to Adam and Eve as an overflow of the love and grace of the heart of God toward these people. They were given as an overflow of the love of Adam and Eve for each other and as they engaged in a depth of love with one another, life was born. But unfortunately, as they grew, Cain became uh, immersed in jealousy over his brother and actually lured him out into a field and killed him. And then when God confronted Cain face to face, he denied it. Thanks be to God, Cain eventually humbled himself before God. And in response to that humility, God poured an incredible amount of mercy upon this man. It is still amazing to me how merciful God was toward a man who had just committed murder, probably the first murder on the face of the earth. None of us would have treated Cain like that, but God is literally abounding with mercy. It says it in the Bible in so many different ways, in so many places, that He's rich, He's overflowing, He's abounding with mercy. And all it takes to enact His mercy, all it takes to receive the mercy of God in the life of a sinner is humility. That's it. When God smells humility in the life of a human being, He's attracted to it, just like a moth is attracted to the flame. It's like He just can't help Himself. 
He senses, He sees, He smells humility, and He pours His mercy upon the life of whoever will humble themselves. This has always been true, and it will always be true. Our God is an immensely merciful God. This is, this is a truth of God that goes to the depth of His being. Here's one sign that we know that. One day Moses had asked God, please God, reveal to me your glory. God had been meeting with Moses in powerful ways over a, an amount of time. And I think Moses just in his heart longed to see this God who had been leading him so powerfully. And he said, oh God, my Father, please show me your glory. And in a measure, God granted his request. And as God opened Moses' eyes and passed before him, if you will, the Lord spoke these words. And you just have to, to take this in of all the things God could have said about Himself at the moment of revealing His glory. Here is what He chose to say in Exodus 34, 6-7. And I put this up on the screen for you. The Lord passed before Him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When it says there at the beginning of verse 7 that God's mercy and graciousness and steadfast love and faithfulness extends to thousands. What that really means, that's a Hebrew way of saying that it extends to the thousandth generation. In fact, some of your English translations will translate it that way, that His mercy extends all the way to the thousandth generation. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, this saying is repeated again, and it says that again very clearly. The mercy of God, the grace the steadfast love of God, the faithfulness of God goes to the thousandth generation. And we just have to pause here and take this in. That is a very, very long time. From right this moment back to the days of Jesus has been just slightly less than 2,000 years. That seems like a long time to us. But if you put it in the terms of generations, it's not very much at all. It's a generally agreed upon number that a generation is about 40 years. So if a generation is 40 years, and it's been 2,000 years since Jesus lived, that means only 50 generations have passed from the days of Jesus to our own days. Before Him, Abraham lived 2,000 years about before Christ. It's a long time from Abraham's day to our day is 4,000 years, but in terms of generations, it's not very much. Is only 100 generations from the days of Abraham all the way to the days of us. So we just have to take this in. When the Bible says His steadfast love extends for a thousand generations, that equals 40,000 years. The Bible is saying that the steadfast love of God endures forever. It doesn't just mean 40,000 years exactly. It means forever. It's very much like the day that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord... How often should we forgive people who have sinned against us? In their day, religious leaders uh, taught that you should forgive a person three times. And so the disciples were actually being gracious when they said, Lord, should we forgive people up to seven times when they've wronged us? Jesus' answer is very telling of His mercy because He said, no, not three times, not seven times, 
but you should forgive those who've sinned against you 70 times, 7 times. That's 490 times. The Lord did not mean that we should forgive people exactly 490 times. That we should keep a journal of every time we've forgiven them. And when we get to number 491, we, we stop. He did not mean that. What He meant was, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. As long as you see humility and repentance in the heart of another, forgive. Your God is merciful to the thousandth generation. He never ceases forgiving. So you be merciful as your Father is merciful. Beloved, God is trying to say of Himself, mercy is the mark of my heart. I am slow to anger, extremely slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. On the other hand, there does come a time when God will not acquit the guilty, but He will punish those who deserve to be punished. I think here in Exodus 34, when it talks about that, I think it means people who sort of dig in and are arrogant and refuse to humble themselves and confess their sins. And he's saying, listen, when I have to punish someone, I punish them not to the thousandth generation, but to the third and fourth generation. And what does that mean? Most of us, by the grace of God, will live to see our grandchildren. Many of us will live to see our great-grandchildren. In our day, people are a little older when they're having babies, so maybe not so much in our day. But for most of human history, it was not at all odd to live to see the fourth generation. So God is saying, my mercy endures forever. My punishment will only last for a person's lifetime. He's trying to contrast His mercy as over against His just anger towards sin. And He's saying, the thing that really marks my heart is mercy. I will punish. I will when I must. But my heart is a merciful heart. And if I smell mercy in you, if I see any humility in you, it will attract me and I will forgive you and pour my blessings all over you. Like Cain, most of us will have to face some of the consequences of our sin sometime for the rest of our lives. Most of you know that for a lot of my life I was a drug addict and a rebel and I did a lot of things that I'm ashamed to admit and frankly that I won't even talk about anymore. And I bear in my body the pain of some of the things that I have done in my past and I will bear it till the day that I die. And I thank God for that because when I experience certain things physically and mentally, it reminds me of who I was and of how I lived and of how merciful God has been toward me. And it makes me thank Him with all of my heart. He will sometimes make us deal with the consequences of our sins. But beloved, if He smells humility in you or me, He will forgive our sins to the thousandth generation. This is the point of Exodus 34. And it's something we must understand about the depth of the heart of God. The reason I wanted to take some time to go into this this morning is because we're going to think about a story today that most of us are used to thinking of as sort of a childlike story. We heard the story of the flood of the days of Noah. Even people who are not Jews or Christians know about this story. We've seen the books We've seen the nice illustrations. We've seen the paintings on the walls with the animals coming to the ark or their heads hanging over the side or with the rainbow in the sky. And when we think about this story, we often get warm, fuzzy, childlike feelings about it. But beloved, this is not a child's story at all. It's not a pretty story at all. This is a, a story of the most devastating outpouring of the anger of God towards sin that's ever happened in the history of the world. And that's just a fact. 
God, in response to arrogance and a refusal to repent, not for a day or a week or a month or a year, but for centuries on end, God finally had enough. He was grieved in His heart and He destroyed all life on the earth except for that that was on the ark itself. This is not a children's story. And and the reason I wanted to talk about the mercy of God is because when we look deep into the anger of God towards sin, we have to understand that He will punish, but He is a merciful God. He will get angry, but He's not an angry God. Think in your mind of a, a parent who's just angry and mean and grumpy. That's sort of an angry person. God is not like that. God is like a parent who is healthy and holy and in control of himself. And he's slow to anger. He's very difficult to provoke. He's merciful. But at one point or another, his mercy reaches its end and he must punish because he's a good and a holy and a just God. So let's keep that in mind now as we turn our minds to the story of the great flood. After the days of Cain, the earth did fill with human beings, but unfortunately, the earth also filled with wickedness. That's the words that the Bible uses. The Bible, the, the earth was full of wickedness from the point of view of the Lord. And Moses points out a, a few particular things. He says that the people in that day were just giving themselves to sensual passions, not very much unlike our own day. They're just indulging in all kinds of sensuality. And you know, I've been saying over the last weeks, God created sensual pleasure. He loves sensual pleasure. It's His idea. But He put it in certain bounds in the context of a holy, united, committed, lifelong marriage. And when that pleasure gets out of those bounds, it's destructive. It's like fire. Fire is really good in a fireplace. It's life-giving. It's in fact necessary to life. But when fire gets out of its proper place, it destroys things. And sensual pleasure is like that. It's beautiful. It's God-given. Without it, we wouldn't have dedicated the children this morning. But when it gets out of place, it's destructive. And God said the earth was filled with sensual pleasure that was not, in fact, pleasing to Him or within His will. The other thing Moses said was that the earth was corrupt. There's a lot of corruption in the earth, even like in our own day. And the earth was filled with violence. I don't think that that means that every single person on the earth was violent, but I do think it means wherever you turn, there's just violence everywhere. It's a lot like our world today. There are wars everywhere. There's carousing everywhere. There's conflict everywhere. People fighting everywhere. There's domestic abuse. There's family abuse. There's all kinds of forms of violence filling the earth in our day, and it was certainly filling the earth in their day as well. And the deeper thing that gave rise to all of these visible things was that the heart of human beings was corrupt the bible says this just really strikes me to the heart it says that god looked he's not a superficial god beloved he looks beyond the surface of things and sees down into the core down into the roots and when he looked down into the heart of human beings what he saw was that the very intentions of the heart were were turned in the wrong direction which skewed the thoughts and then the thoughts skewed the action so that the real problem in the earth wasn't just sensuality or violence or corruption it was a, a wicked heart inside human beings and God saw this and he was deeply 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 grieved 
Remember all that we've meditated on in the last month or so. Remember the beauty and the glory of what God had done in creating the heavens and the earth and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and human beings in His own image. Remember all the beauty of the things God had done and now what He sees in the human heart is corruption and it grieves Him to the core of His being. More could be said about what the earth was like in those days. But... The point is that things were really bad. God was not nitpicking on people. And He's not a God like that then. He's not a God like that now. Where He's just sort of looking for little flaws and any little tiny imperfection He sees in you. He's just waiting to punish and smash you and me. He's not a God that's like that. He's incredibly patient and merciful. We're talking about pervasive wickedness in the world. And so God made a very difficult decision. And he decided to send a great flood and to blot out every single living thing on the face of the earth. I cannot imagine what that felt like for God. As he looked on the earth and thought about what he had done in creation, thought about the way it had gone, none of this was a surprise to God. He's a a knowledgeable God. He knows all things. He knows the end before the beginning. So it's not like God didn't know this was going. And yet the Bible's clear. His heart was so deeply grieved. I can't imagine what it was like for him. But he made this very difficult decision. However, as a a demonstration of the mercy in his heart, he did find one man, Noah, who was pleasing in his sight. And he decided to establish his covenant with that man. The Bible says that Noah was righteous in God's sight and blameless. That doesn't mean that he was sinless. doesn't mean he was perfect. He was just like any of us. There was no perfect man that's ever walked this earth except for Jesus Christ alone. And so it's not that Noah didn't sin. It's that Noah was humble before God. I told you, beloved, in the days of Noah, if people would have just humbled themselves, God would have relented. And I know that because I've seen Him do it in my own life and in the Bible over and over and over again. In the face of imminent threat, God sees humility. He relents from punishment. This is God. But all He could find in the earth was one man who would humble himself and confess his sin and walk with the Lord and listen to the Lord. And so when the time was right, God shared with Noah what was on his heart. God told Noah what he was about to do. And he commanded Noah to build a great big boat to take with him his wife, his three sons and their wives, and one pair of every unclean animal on the earth and seven pairs of every clean animal on the earth. In future days, we'll talk about the difference between clean and unclean animals. But God commanded Noah to did this, to do this. And the Bible simply says that Noah obeyed all that God commanded. That's the key to understanding Noah. That's the key to knowing why God found favor, or Noah found favor in the eyes of God. It simply is not that Noah was perfect. It's simply that Noah was willing to listen to God and do what God said. Beloved, it is so easy to please God. He's not trying to make it hard for us. He never has and He never will. All He's saying is, I created you. Humble yourself and listen to me. I have your joy in my mind. Submit yourself to me. You will know my mercy. You will know my blessing. That's all that Noah's life was about. He heard, he humbled, he obeyed the words of the Lord. And having heard everything that the Lord said, Noah put his hand to this work and he completed all that he was commanded to do. And about a hundred years later now, the time came and God says, Noah, get on the ark. The Bible tells us that when Noah began to to get on the ark with all the animals, a process that took about a week, 
says that he was 600 years old. Next week I'm going to talk about the length of days of people in that time. Don't have the time to go into it now. I'll comment on it then. But for now, I want to tell you, I do believe he was literally this old. He was 500 years old when his children were born. He's now 600 years old, which is yet another mark of the mercy of God that God let an entire century pass before He passed His judgment on the people and He gave them time to repent, certainly they would have seen Noah building that boat and certainly it was the weirdest thing they could have seen. Certainly they questioned Him about it. Certainly He told them the heart of God. But just as certainly they rejected the mercy of God, continued in their ways. And so when the time was full, God sent the great flood upon the earth. He caused waters to burst from the sky and from the depths of the earth in such a way that the whole entire earth was literally covered with water. The Bible even says the mountains were covered to a depth of at least 20 feet. This was not a localized flood in one part of the world. This was a worldwide devastating flood that covered the whole earth, even the mountains. Think about New Orleans. Think about Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That is nothing compared to what happened in these days. God sent a great flood upon the earth. And the end result of it was that He did indeed blot all life out, everything that had breath, birds, beasts, human beings, except for those who were on the ark. Beloved, this is a very great catastrophe. This is not a child's story. And it graphically displays the sorrowful anger of God towards sin. God will not tolerate sin forever. But even when He has to punish it, He is so sorrowful. We should not have in our minds a God who is like happy to punish the earth. He's not happy. He's a God of blessing and not of cursing. But He will in fact punish when He has to. When the time was full, God caused the waters of the flood to subside because the Bible said in His mercy He remembered Noah and his family and the animals. The waters began to secede over a number of days and at one point or other the ship finally landed up on top of Mount Ararat. Don't really know where that's at. Some think they do. I, I don't have any idea. But I do believe it was a real place. I do believe this was a real ark. The, the, the ark settles. The waters continue to secede. And at some point, the human beings on that boat are able to get off. The animals are able to get off and then go and fill the earth again. I just can't imagine. I was thinking this morning of what it must have been like for those eight people to be on that boat and sort of have a front row seat to the wrath of God pouring out on the earth. And I just wondered, what must it have been like for them? I mean, what was going through their minds? How did this experience impact their souls? And what did it teach them about God? How, how did it mark and shape the rest of their lives? I don't know. But I can't imagine being there. It was a, a, a great, great thing. And they saw it with their own eyes. I'll say it again, beloved. This is not a children's story. This is not a fable. This is an accurate recounting of the sorrowful anger of God poured out against sin in the history of the world. And though I'm not an expert on this subject, and I never will be because I just don't frankly have time to go into it, I do want to take a few minutes here and just tell you a few things, five evidences that I know of that would argue that a great flood did in fact engulf the whole earth, that this is not a fable, but that it's a true story. I, in a way, I hesitate to do this because I really don't know a lot about these things. I'm very dependent on others that I've read over the years. 
But I do want to at least give a few hints of the evidence that is there and, and, and encourage you to let it sink in that this is not a kid's story. Five things. First of all, scholars over the years have discovered stories about a great flood from cultures all over this earth. Now how do you explain that? It would be one thing if you found stories of a great flood that were existing in the area where Israel is, and you do find that in all those cultures around there. Every culture in that area has a flood story in their history. But how do you explain the fact that cultures in other parts of the earth also have uh, narrative stories of a great, great flood? Now the stories differ radically. Radically. They offer different explanations talk about different gods, but what they agree on is that a great flood one day engulfed this earth. How do you explain that? Second thing, geologists who are upfront about the fact that they believe in the Bible, they believe the historicity of the Bible, they nonetheless argue that when they look at the sediments of the earth and the way that it settled, kind of looks like sediments would look if they were shook up in liquid and allowed to settle down on their own in the context of liquid. As kids, we've all had those little toys where there's sand in the thing, and then we shake it up, it's full of liquid, you shake it up and you watch the stuff settle, and somehow or other the heavy stuff goes to the bottom, the lighter stuff goes on top, and they stratify according to their own kind. Often those things are even colored so that you can see the colors stay together pretty much. When you look at the sediment of the earth, it's laid out like that. There are layers of sediment that are a mile and a half deep of the same stuff. How do you explain that? I'm no geologist, but just reading those who are geologists, I look at it and go, yeah, how do you explain that? Unless something shook up the earth, stirred up the sentiments, and they settled, just like they do in liquid. Number three, if you pause for a moment and think about the existence of fossils, it's actually really weird that you can dig up and see a whole entire skeleton of an animal preserved in the ground. That's actually really strange. Imagine with me a wild horse out in the middle of nowhere, Montana or something like that. It just falls over and dies. Do you really think in five years or ten years or a hundred years or a thousand years, someone's going to come along that place and see a perfectly preserved skeleton? That will not happen. That thing will be decayed by the elements or it will be carried away by other animals. One thing that will not be there in a hundred years is a perfectly preserved skeleton. How do you explain that perfectly preserved skeletons are preserved all over the earth, even up on mountains? How do you explain that? Unless there was a great flood, a great death, something suddenly happened and the beasts were buried in such a way that their remains were preserved. They were mummified in a way, if you will. How do you explain that if you don't believe that a flood actually did engulf the earth? Fourth, besides the existence of, of, of fossils on mountaintops, which I find really strange if there was not a flood, you know what else we find on mountaintops? Things like seashells. I read something this week that talked about not one or two, but whole groups of seashells at the tops of mountains. How do you explain that? Unless there had been a great, great flood that did in fact cover even the mountaintops. Fifth and finally, and this is admittedly more subjective, but you know, like you, I've flown a, a little bit. And I've flown 30,000, 40,000 feet. You look down at the contours of the earth, and it just seems to me like the geographic, geological realities of the earth 
and the way it's shaped and the grand canyons of the earth and things like that are so much easier to explain through a catastrophic movement of water rather than a slow, steady movement of water over billions of years. I just believe the earth itself testifies that there was a great and massive movement of water upon it. Beloved, again, I am no expert in these things, and I really do tremble to put these out before you because I can't defend what I've just said very much. I'm, I'm leaning on others, but if you ever want resources, I'll tell you where you can read and go to look to people who really do know what they're talking about. Again, what I'm trying to do here today is to help us see that this story is real. It's not a child's story. We must look to it as a sign of who our God is and what He might do. Listen, Jesus Christ took this story very seriously. Jesus Christ, who is God and walked this earth and taught us on the earth, interpreted this flood story literally. He took it very seriously and He pointed to that story and said, that catastrophe is a sign of another catastrophe to come that will be worse and more permanent. God poured His just anger out on the people then, and a day is coming when He will do it again. He will not do it by water. This time He will do it by fire. If Jesus Christ took this story that seriously, we must take this story seriously. We must do away with childlike imaginations of what the story of the flood was about and let the Bible persuade us about the actual fact of the matter. And the fact of the matter is that the flood was an outpouring of the sorrowful, grievous anger of God towards sin. He is so attracted to humility. If the people of that day would have repented, He would have forgiven them. But they dug in, and so in His justice, in His love, in His righteousness, He did in fact judge them. Going back to Noah for a second here. As soon as the flood subsided, he did something that I find amazing and that I see gives me insight into why he found such favor in the sight of God. As soon as he got off the boat, he built an altar to God, he made sacrifices to God, and he led his family to worship God. He had just witnessed with his own eyes the most devastating outpouring of wrath. And what was his response but to bow his face before God and worship He knew the heart of God. He knew the mercy of God. He knew the sorrow of God. He knew the intentions of God. And so Noah worshipped Him with all of his heart and with all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. God found Noah's worship very pleasing. It was like a pleasing aroma in his nostrils, the Bible says. And so God made His covenant with Noah and with His sons after him and said, listen, I will not destroy the earth in this particular way ever again, but as long as the earth exists, there will be seasons and days and comings and goings, cold here and warm there. And I will put my rainbow in the sky as the sign of the covenant. And every time I see it, every time you see it, we will remember this covenant and I will be faithful to the promise I have made. The history of the world from the moment of Noah's life to our own moment testifies that God is faithful because He never has allowed the floods of the waters to engulf the earth again. He is a good God and a faithful God and He keeps His promises all the way to the end. I will set my bow in the sky and I will remember my covenant. That is the mercy and the faithfulness of God on display. Now as I've been saying, One of the reasons that this story is so important for us is because it's not just about something that happened to people a long time ago. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God 
Himself in flesh on the earth, pointed to that story and said, listen, you need to hear me. Another catastrophe is coming on the earth. God will judge the earth once more. He will grievously, sorrowfully pour out His anger towards sin. And you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. So believe in Me, Jesus said. Believe in Me. Specifically, here's what the Lord said in Matthew 24. I put this up on the PowerPoint so you wouldn't have to turn. But you might want to go there later and read this more carefully. But concerning that day and that hour, in other words, the final day, the end day, the judgment day, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, by which Jesus meant Himself, but the Father only, God the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, He's talking about His second visitation upon the earth. He came here the first time as a man to live a righteous life, to fulfill the law of God, and then to die a really horrible death And through that death, what he was doing was taking on himself the punishment from God toward us for our sins. Jesus, this time, looks upon the sin that's in the world, the wickedness that's in the world. He's moved to the heart. He's deeply grieved. He decides to come to the earth and take our punishment for us. And then he said, If you will simply believe in Me, your punishment will go upon Me. The mercy of the Father will go upon you. You will not receive the wrath of God. You will not be caught up in the days of the Son of Men when God sorrowfully pours out His anger towards sin. Rather, you will be a recipient of the mercy of God that will last forever and ever and ever. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God except by me. In other words, beloved, Jesus was saying, I'm the ark. The only way to escape the flood of Noah's day was to be on that ark. The only way to escape the wrath of God that is coming in the future, who knows how soon Jesus said it could happen at any moment. The only way to escape is to be on the ark of Jesus Christ. And the way to get on that ark is simple, simple, simple. Humble yourself and believe. That's it. God is not asking for us things that we can't do. He's just saying, humble yourself and believe. Show me a little humility. I will pour my mercy upon you to the thousandth generation. I will do it. This is the heart of God toward us, beloved. He's pleading with us, even right now, through Jesus Christ, humble yourself, humble yourself, know my mercy, and you will never, ever, ever know my wrath. When Jesus comes again, He said just a little earlier in Matthew, that it won't be like it was before. You know, people will say, oh, Jesus is out in such and such a place. Let's go see Him. He appeared in Israel, or He appeared in South America, or He appeared in Russia, or wherever. He said, don't believe it. When you hear that, do not believe it. It won't be like that at all. I won't come in the flesh. Next time I come, I will come in great power with the angels. The lightning, the the sky will light up around the whole earth like lightning has struck. And every eye will see the coming of the Son of Man. He will raise all the dead. Everyone who has ever lived in the history of the world will be there before Him and He will judge us all. 
To those who are arrogant, He will sorrowfully, grievously pour out His wrath. To those who have humbled themselves and believe, He will mercifully pour His grace and steadfast love and faithfulness on them forever and ever and ever and ever. The only difference between these two people is one humbled themselves and the other did not. Beloved, I'm telling you, God loves the smell of mercy. I'm a chocolate-aholic. When I smell chocolate, I'm just drawn. I mean, someone gave me some chocolate yesterday. I couldn't stay out of the kitchen, and I mean it. It's like every 30 minutes, I'm going back to get another piece and another piece. God feels like that about humility. When He smells humility, He cannot help but being drawn. So, beloved, let us humble ourselves before God today. He is a mightily merciful God. Even when He has to pour out wrath, this remains true of Him all the way to the end. He's a God who longs to bless and not to judge. When I have to punish my child, I will do it because I love her, but I don't like it. I love to bless my daughter. And my wife loves to bless her daughter, and God is just that same way. So, in conclusion, the message for right this moment is just come just as you are. Bring who you really are into the presence of God and humble yourself before Him and He will pour His mercy upon you. There is a coming day of judgment, but you can escape that in a heartbeat. Come just as you are. Hear the Savior's call and believe in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, the words of You remain true all the way to the very end, that You are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, incredibly slow to anger, it takes centuries and even millennia to provoke you to anger. But you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You pour steadfast love upon us to the thousandth generation, even though you must punish the guilty to the third and fourth generation. Oh God, I've tried to be as faithful as I can and to balance these things as well as I can. And now I just hold them in your presence. And I ask you, Father, to reveal yourself to us. Open our eyes that we may see the depth of your heart, Father. Humble our hearts that we would just willingly come before you and give our lives to you with childlike faith. God, even I myself, Father, I renounce the rebellion that still remains in my life after 24 years of walking with you. And I ask you, help me, Father, to just humbly put my life before you. I want to know you, Lord. I want to know your mercy. I want to know your blessing. So please come upon my life and come upon everyone's life here today. Lord, I pray especially for one who might not know who you are at all. Maybe all this is just brand new to somebody in the room today. Oh God, please open their eyes, even as you opened my eyes in 1986. Help them to see the glory and the beauty of your mercy, I pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.